Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know as it pertains to chromosomal abnormalities. We'll start off the episode with an explanation behind some of the more commonly implicated cellular and molecular mechanisms that cause chromosomal abnormalities, and I'll use Down syndrome as an example for this purpose as it is by far and away the most commonly tested disorder of the bunch. Then, we'll discuss the various methods of screening and diagnosing chromosomal abnormalities in the prenatal period. After that, we'll dive into some of the hallmark physical exam findings seen in patients with chromosomal abnormalities, as well as discuss some special clinical considerations you need to be aware of. As I mentioned, we'll be focusing a lot on Down syndrome during this episode, but we'll also be discussing trisomies 18 and 13, all the sex chromosomal disorders, as well as several other various pathologies relating to chromosomal aberrations. Note, however, that I won't be discussing the acquired chromosomal abnormalities in this episode, which are the disorders implicated in various cancers. I believe this topic is separate enough that it would warrant its own episode in the future. I hope you're as excited as I am to learn about chromosomal abnormalities today, so let's get into it. Down syndrome, or trisomy 21, is perhaps the most widely recognized chromosomal abnormality. About 95% of cases of Down syndrome are caused by a mechanism common to many of the chromosomal disorders known as aneuploidy. An aneuploidy is characterized by an abnormal number of chromosomes, usually as the result of a non-disjunction event early in gamete genesis, wherein a dividing germ cell will unevenly segregate its chromosomal pairs into its two daughter cells. The end result of aneuploidy is that one daughter cell will contain more than two copies of a particular chromosome, while the other daughter cell will contain less than two copies. In the case of Down syndrome, patients will have three copies of chromosome 21, which is responsible for causing all the sequelae of the syndrome, which we will soon discuss. Before we get into that, allow me to quickly share a few general themes about aneuploidies, as these will be relevant for today's discussion as we make our way through the various syndromes. In general, Aneuploidies are actually quite common, and are thought to be present in up to 20% of all conceptions. Most aneuploidies are lethal. Trisomies tend to be better tolerated than monosomies. Sex chromosome aneuploidies are much more likely to be compatible with life than autosomal aneuploidies. And the risk of aneuploidy pregnancies increases dramatically after a maternal age of 35. There are two other lesser mechanisms by which Down syndrome may develop, including Robertsonian translocations and mosaicism. Robertsonian translocations make up about 4% of Down syndrome cases, and what happens here is that there are a few acrocentric chromosomes, 13, 14, 15, 21, and 22, 
meaning that they have markedly different P-arm and Q-arm sizes on either side of the centromere. During early development, any one of these two acrocentric chromosomes may become fused together and fail to separate at the level of the centromere, resulting in a megachromosome with two Q-arms and a tiny chromosome with two P-arms, the latter of which usually only contains non-essential genes and is discarded after a few cell divisions. An individual born with a Robertsonian translocation affecting, say, chromosomes 21 and 14 will still carry two copies of all the major genes, so they are said to be balanced and will typically have no symptoms at all. However, if this individual were to have a child, then they risk passing on their mega QQ chromosome along with the normal chromosome of their partner, resulting in a child with three copies of that chromosome, which, in the case of chromosome 21, leads to Down syndrome. And about 1% of Down syndrome cases are the result of mosaicism, which is a phenomenon wherein there is a new mutation in very early embryogenesis, resulting in two karyotypically distinct cell lineages, some of which may contain a third copy of chromosome 21, leading to features of Down syndrome. As we make our way through this episode, note that each of the mechanisms I've just described are applicable to many of the syndromes we will be discussing today as well as several other mechanisms which I will only be briefly touching on during this episode, including duplications, deletions, trinucleotide repeats, and a few others. Now that we have that groundwork laid out for us, let's discuss prenatal screening and diagnosis of chromosomal abnormalities. Firstly, it's important to recognize that all patients should be counseled on the pros and cons of each of the various methods we're going to discuss and that they always reserve the right to refuse any particular test if it doesn't align with their individual goals and values. If they do elect to undergo screening, it will start at around 10 to 14 weeks gestation with a combination of tests collectively known as the first trimester screen. The first trimester screen includes measurements of maternal beta-HCG, maternal PAP-A, which stands for pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, as well as a first trimester ultrasound measuring something called nuchal translucency. Nuchal translucency refers to the thickness of a fluid-filled space on the dorsal aspect of the fetal neck, and if it is greater than 3 centimeters, then the risk of aneuploidy increases dramatically. These three tests, in combination with other factors, such as maternal age, can be used to estimate the risk for some of the most common autosomal trisomies, such as 13, 18, and 21. By around 15 to 22 weeks, the second trimester triple screen can be performed, which measures the levels of maternal beta-HCG, alpha-fetoprotein, and estriol. Some labs may also test for additional analytes, such as inhibin A, in which the panel is called the quadruple screen. But for our purposes today, we'll just run through the triple screen now, since I think it'll be easier to remember three things versus four things. In trisomy 21, Beta-HCG is up, AFP is down, and estriol is down. In trisomy 18, all three levels are down. And in neural tube defects, which I'll just mention despite not being the focus of this episode, all of the levels are normal except for AFP, which is way up. These values can be evaluated in the context of a second trimester ultrasound, which may detect a variety of anatomical defects, such as cardiac abnormalities, which may or may not co-present with chromosomal abnormalities. 
Some common second trimester ultrasound findings that have association with Down syndrome include absent or hypoplastic nasal bones, larger than average kidneys due to a buildup of urine known as pyelectasis, mild to moderate ventriculomegaly, and hyperechogenic bowel appearing as bright as bone on ultrasound. The first and second trimester screening tests are, however, just screening tests. The gold standard prenatal diagnosis of chromosomal abnormalities can only be made by directly analyzing fetal cells obtained from more invasive procedures such as amniocentesis, chorionic villus sampling, or cordocentesis. This is still the case despite the more recent advent of the now widely available method of analyzing cell-free DNA. In modern practice, starting at around 9 weeks gestation, we can now actually analyze the mother's serum directly for something called cell-free DNA, which are remnants of fetal trophoblastic cells that previously underwent programmed cell death. During a typical pregnancy, about 3 to 13% of the cell-free DNA found in the mother's serum are from fetal origin, and these DNA fragments can be analyzed for identifying chromosomal abnormalities in the fetus. Now let's fast forward to the birth of the baby and run through the list of some of the most common chromosomal syndromes and discuss common features you might expect to find on physical exam, as well as a few clinical considerations you should also keep in the back of your mind. As we go through the list, note that many of the infants born with any of these syndromes, especially those syndromes involving autosomal chromosomes, will tend to share a lot of common characteristics with each other, including poor muscle tone, congenital heart defects, congenital GI defects, cleft lip or palate, malformation of the kidney, and various other findings. But I'll do my best to try to keep it simple by only pointing out the most classically associated features with each. In Down syndrome, or trisomy 21, newborns will typically have flat faces, upslanting palpebral fissures, a flat occiput, a single transverse palmar crease, and brush felt spots and or colobomas, which are eye defects wherein the iris will respectively take on either a tear-shaped or speckled appearance. Newborns born with Down syndrome will often have congenital heart defects, so all newborns diagnosed with Down syndrome should have an echocardiogram within the first week of life. The most common congenital heart defects associated with Down syndrome are, in descending order of frequency, atrioventricular septal defects, ventricular septal defects, secundum atrial defects, tetralogy of Fallot, and patent ductus arteriosus, with up to 30% of patients having more than one concurrent defect. In addition, congenital GI defects are also commonly seen in Down syndrome, including small bowel atresia, annular pancreas, imperforate anus, and Hirschsprung disease. Hirschsprung disease is a failure of neural crust cells to migrate to the distal parts of the rectum, resulting in a loss of distal peristalsis and causing a functional colonic obstruction. Hirschsprung disease often manifests as delayed passage of meconium, defined as meconium passage beyond the first 48 hours of life. Although Hirschsprung disease is commonly associated with Down syndrome, both conditions are also likely to occur as isolated conditions from one another. Gold standard diagnosis of Hirschsprung disease is made by obtaining a rectal biopsy and noting an absence of ganglion in the tissue. And other than Hirschsprung disease, what is another major cause of delayed meconium passage? That's right, it's cystic fibrosis. Very good. Most cases of Down syndrome do not make it beyond conception, 
However, those who make it to birth have a median survival of 47 years old. Individuals with Down syndrome are at a high risk for various pathologies later in life and should be routinely screened for feeding issues, hearing and vision, thyroid function, neurological function, and certain cancers. In particular, individuals with Down syndrome are at elevated risk for the development of both acute myeloblastic anemia as well as acute lymphoblastic anemia. And by age 40, up to half of all patients with Down syndrome will present with signs of Alzheimer's disease as the third copy of chromosome 21 promotes the aggregation of beta amyloid in the brain. All right, moving on now from Down syndrome, let's discuss Edwards syndrome and Patau syndrome. I'm lumping these two together like this because if you're anything like me, you always get these two mixed up with each other. Edwards syndrome is trisomy 18, and Patau syndrome is trisomy 13. Infants born with either of these syndromes will typically have microcephaly, congenital heart and renal defects, and rocker bottom feet. Rocker bottom feet, also known as congenital vertical talus, is an irreducible dislocation of the talus causing the sole of the foot to dorsiflex, resulting in a rigid, sloping appearance of the bottom of the foot, similar to that of the bottom of a rocking chair. So, with all these overlapping features between Edwards syndrome and Patau syndrome, it can be difficult to differentiate the two by physical exam alone. Some key clues to look out for are to remember that Edwards syndrome babies will typically have clenched fists with overlapping digits, while Patau syndrome babies will have small, underdeveloped eyes and holoprosencephaly, which is a failure of the forebrain precursor, the prosencephalon, to properly develop early in brain development. If I were you, I would just commit one of those to memory. And then if you see something on the exam that looks close to the one you know, but doesn't line up perfectly, then just pick the other one. Both Edwards syndrome and Patau syndrome carry a poor prognosis with a median survival of just one year of age. Let's move on now to the sex chromosomal aneuploidies, starting with Klinefelter syndrome. Klinefelter syndrome, karyotype 47XXY, is the most commonly occurring form of aneuploidy, although other variations have also been identified, including 48XXXY. Klinefelter syndrome is not typically diagnosed at birth, as the presence of the Y chromosome influences the external genitalia to be male-appearing. However, as the individual reaches puberty, there may be a wide array of signs and symptoms attributable to the extra X chromosome, including tall stature, long limbs, gynecomastia, and mostly normal-appearing external male genitalia, with the exception of small, firm testicles. Individuals with Klinefelter syndrome have impaired testicular development resulting in fibrosis and sperm dysgenesis. Patients with Klinefelter syndrome may also have cognitive delays, particularly in areas of speech and language processing. If detected early enough, pediatric endocrinologists may recommend supplemental testosterone in order to prevent some of the typical Klinefelter characteristics seen developing around puberty. Some individuals, however, may have little to no symptoms due to inactivation of the additional X chromosome forming a bar body visible on karyotyping. Laboratory findings seen in Klinefelter syndrome include low testosterone due to dysfunctional Sertoli cells. One of the first presenting signs of Klinefelter syndrome may be infertility when attempting to conceive with their partner, 
as up to 3% of cases of male infertility are actually due to Klinefelter syndrome. Nowadays, some of these cases of infertility can actually be resolved by using techniques to surgically retrieve the sperm for use in IVF. Now let's talk about Turner syndrome, karyotype 45XO. Turner syndrome is the only viable monosomy and is the most commonly seen chromosomal abnormality affecting females. Similar to Klinefelter, Turner syndrome is not typically diagnosed until later in childhood or young adulthood. Some common characteristics of Turner syndrome include short stature, webbed neck, low posterior hairline, and amenorrhea. In fact, the single most common cause of amenorrhea is actually Turner syndrome and this is due to ovarian dysgenesis resulting in streak ovaries visible on ultrasound. There are a few other associations to be aware of for Turner syndrome, including increased risk of horseshoe kidney, bicuspid aortic valve, and coarctation of the aorta. Prognosis of Turner syndrome can vary widely depending on the severity of the disease, but most individuals will go on to lead essentially normal lives. Now let's talk about triple X syndrome, karyotype 47XXX. Triple X syndrome is when females receive an additional copy of the X chromosome. Some individuals with triple X syndrome will have increased height and motor and cognitive delays. However, many individuals will exhibit no symptoms at all as the additional X chromosome is neutralized by forming an additional bar body, such as is seen in some cases of Klinefelter syndrome. Now let's talk about XYY syndrome, karyotype 47XYY. The symptomatology of XYY syndrome is pretty similar to that of triple X syndrome, with the exception being that the individual is phenotypically male. The only other major difference is that instead of most triple X cases presenting normal while only some exhibit symptoms, the reverse is true for XYY syndrome, where in most cases will have increased height and cognitive and motor delays while a relatively smaller proportion of cases will go on to have normal development. Alright, now that we got through all the major autosomal and sex chromosome aneuploidies, I'd like to give a few honorable mentions to some other syndromes that are caused by various mechanisms of chromosomal aberrations. Cree-Duchat syndrome is a deletion of the p-arm of chromosome 5, and babies born with this condition will have microcephaly, hypotonia, and a characteristic cat-like cry brought about by malformation of the larynx. Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome is a partial deletion of the p-arm of chromosome 4, and children with this syndrome will typically have intellectual disability and characteristic facial structures including microcephaly and micrognathia, or small jaw. Jacobson syndrome is a partial deletion of the q-arm of chromosome 11 and results in mild to moderate intellectual disability with a strong association for the bleeding disorder Paris Trousseau syndrome. This is because the Q-arm of chromosome 11 contains genes needed for normal platelet function, so individuals with Jacobson syndrome are at high risk for impaired coagulation. Charcot-Marie Tooth syndrome is a spectrum of disorders relating to the partial duplication of the P-arm of chromosome 17, which contains genes essential for peripheral nerve development. Charcot-Marie Tooth Syndrome is the most commonly inherited neuromuscular disorder and is characterized by progressive weakness and muscle wasting. Next, let's talk about Prader-Willi Syndrome and Angelman Syndrome. 
The reason I'm lumping these two together is because they can sort of be thought of as two sides of the same coin. In normal development, there's a region on chromosome 15 that, when inherited by the mother, is entirely methylated, or silenced, while the paternal copy of that chromosomal region is transcriptionally active. In Prader-Willi syndrome, both copies of that chromosomal region are inactivated, leading to the characteristic features of excessive weight gain and intellectual disability. In Angelman syndrome, the paternal copy of that chromosomal region is silenced while the maternal copy is transcriptionally active, which is the complete reverse of the normal form, and will typically present with ataxia, intellectual disability, and a characteristically cheerful demeanor with excessive laughter. While sporadic genetic mutations in the coding regions of these genes are the most commonly implicated molecular mechanism behind these two disorders, they can also arise via a process known as uniparental disomy, wherein both copies of a single chromosome are inherited from a single parent. Then lastly, there are the trinucleotide repeat disorders, each of which commonly affects the neuromuscular system and have the characteristic pattern of exhibiting greater phenotypic penetrance in subsequent generations in a process known as genetic anticipation. These disorders include, but are not limited to, Fragile X syndrome, which is an X-linked dominant trinucleotide repeat disorder of the FMR1 gene and is actually the most commonly inherited form of intellectual disability. Fragile X also has an association with macroorchidism development during puberty. Huntington disease, which is an autosomal dominant trinucleotide repeat disorder of the HTN gene, is characterized by progressively worsening chorea movements starting in middle-aged adults. And do you remember the classic MRI finding seen in Huntington disease? That's right, it's atrophy of the head of the caudate. Very good. Myotonic dystrophy type 1 is X-linked dominant, and the key clinical finding here is an inability to relax the muscles after voluntary contraction, exhibited, for example, by a child who is not able to loosen their grip after being asked to squeeze your finger. Spinocerebellar ataxias, which are a spectrum of disorders usually diagnosed in early adulthood, characterized by progressive ataxia and gait disturbances caused by atrophy of the cerebellum. And the last trinucleotide repeat disorder I will mention is Friedrich's ataxia, which is the most commonly inherited form of ataxia and usually presents in young children as difficulty with standing or running. And that about wraps it up. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with a few practice questions to see how we're doing. Question 1. A 36-year-old primigravid woman at 20 weeks gestation is in your office for a routine prenatal visit. After discussing the pros and cons of screening for chromosomal abnormalities, she agrees to undergo testing with the triple screen with the following results. HCG, high. AFP, low. Estriol, low. The pregnancy was carried to term and a baby boy was delivered. Which of the following is most likely to be associated with this newborn baby? A. Holoprosencephaly. B. Clenched fists with overlapping digits. C. A cat-like cry. Or D. Delayed meconium passage. Answer, D, delayed meconium passage. 
Although definitive prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome requires direct examination of fetal cells, this second trimester triple screen of high HCG, low AFP, and low estriol is highly suspicious for Down syndrome, which is associated with a wide array of characteristic signs at birth, including delayed meconium passage. Delayed meconium passage is the failure for the newborn to pass meconium within the first 48 hours after birth, and in babies with Down syndrome, this is often due to Hirschsprung disease, which is characterized by a dilated distal colon causing a functional obstruction. Question 2. You are examining a one-day-old full-term girl in the newborn nursery. She has been feeding well and has already passed meconium within the first 24 hours. Vital signs are within normal limits. On physical examination of the face, you notice a flat-appearing nose, low-set malformed ears, and bilateral upslanting palpebral fissures. The rest of your examination is consistent with some of the most typical findings associated with this patient's syndrome. Which of the following diagnostic studies would be most appropriate to recommend within the first week of life? A. Abdominal ultrasound. B. Echocardiogram. C. CT angiogram. Or D torch infection panel? Answer B. Echocardiogram. This newborn girl has flat facies, low-set malformed ears, and upslanting palpebral fissures, which are signs that are highly suggestive of Down syndrome. Other common physical exam findings include brush felt spots or colobomas of the iris, a single transverse palmar crease, congenital GI defects such as Hirschsprung disease or hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, as well as congenital heart defects, most commonly either an atrioventricular septal defect or ventricular septal defect. For this reason, it is important that all babies with Down syndrome get an echocardiogram within the first week of life. Question 3. A 28-year-old man is in your office due to a 12-month history of failing to conceive with his wife. On physical examination, the man is in the 90th percentile for height, has long limbs, and on genital exam, you note small, firm, bilateral testes. As part of your infertility workup, you send out for karyotype testing. Which of the following karyotypes is most likely to be present in this patient? A. 46XY B. 47XYY C. 47XXY, or D, 45XO? Answer, C, 47XXY. This infertile man with long limbs and atrophic testicles likely has Klinefelter syndrome, karyotype 47XXY. The presence of an extra X chromosome often causes affected men to have testicular dysgenesis, leading to impartial puberty, and infertility later in life. Question 4. Which of the following molecular mechanisms is chiefly responsible for the most commonly inherited form of intellectual disability? A. Mosaicism. B. Robertsonian translocations. C. Aneuploides. Or D. Trinucleotide repeats. Answer. D. Trinucleotide repeats. The most commonly inherited form of intellectual disability 
is fragile X syndrome, caused by a trinucleotide repeat within the 5' untranslated region of the FMR1 gene, and gets more severe in subsequent generations in a process known as genetic anticipation. While Down syndrome is technically more prevalent than fragile X, 95% of Down syndrome cases are caused by aneuploidy, which is not heritable, but is rather caused by improperly segregating chromosomes in early embryogenesis. The one form of Down syndrome that is heritable is by way of Robertsonian translocations, wherein one parent may be a carrier with two copies of chromosome 21. However, this mechanism only accounts for 4% of Down syndrome cases.